0: Hello and welcome to another episode of Boundless Body Radio. I'm your host, Casey Ruff, and today we have another amazing guest to introduce to you now. Travis Christofferson, MS, is the author of three books. He wrote Tripping Over the Truth in 2017, all about utilizing non-toxic therapies for the treatment of cancer. He wrote Curable in 2019, which examines the systemic failures in our current medical system. Last year, in 2020, he wrote Ketones, The Fourth Fuel, all about our endogenous fuel source, ketones, as an option to supercharge our metabolisms. He is a full-time science writer, the founder of the charity Foundation for Metabolic Cancer Therapies, and the co-founder of Care Oncology USA. He lives in the Black Hills of South Dakota with his wife and two children, and that is exactly where we are going to start this episode. Travis, it's a pleasure to welcome you to Boundless Body Radio
1: great to be here, Casey. Thank you.
0: It's an absolute honor. I followed your work for a very long time and I'm super excited to chat with you today. I was a little surprised by the reason that you are in South Dakota. You told me this via email and I was absolutely blown away. Can you tell the listener a little bit about the reason why you're in uh, the, the location of the world that you are?
1: Yeah. So, well, the, I, step back one bit. I, I met my wife here. Um, we were both going to the School Mines, uh, South Dakota School of Mines of Technology in Rapid City. And we graduated and, you know, we set all these options of things to do. And she graduated as a chemist. And so the first thing that fell in her lap was uh, they were repurposing the Homestake Gold Mine up in Deadwood, South Dakota into an underground physics lab. So it's close to a mile underground and, and they, you know, go down a single shaft and they, they retooled it into this, this underground physics lab. And she got offered a position up there. So that's why we stayed and that's what you know she's been doing ever since.
0: So why does the lab have to be so far underground?
1: So what they're doing is her project I'll give you the physics 101 version that I kind of understand. <laughs> Please. So, <laughs> yeah, so if you go back you go back 14 billion years and the big bang and there's equal parts of matter and antimatter created all at once instantaneously and according to the standard model of physics all of the matter and antimatter should have collided and annihilated itself but as we know there's a sliver of matter that remained and and there's according to the standard model of physics there's no explanation for why this happened it sh- we shouldn't be here there should be no material in the universe wow and so fast forward our back early 20th century an italian physicist came up with a um, named Mirana, came up with a theoretical explanation for that would introduce this sort of asymmetry in material that would allow for this to occur, and uh, that's her project. It's called the Mayrana project. They're looking for this a single event called neutrinoless double beta decay, and it, it, it just astonishingly rare event. It's like one in a trillion chance they'll see it. So they scale this experiment up into these huge vats and detectors. And look for the single event happening in germanium, and if they can detect that, then it would rewrite this, the whole rule book of physics, and, and the standard model would be have to be rearranged. So it's one of these massive, you know, international, huge budget experiments that that they're doing up there.
0: That's amazing. Is that the same thing? I've maybe seen this on uh, like Cosmos or something. Um, it's a big room with a lot of lights, and it's it's in a liquid. Is that is that what that is?
1: That is actually called LUX. That, that's in the same deep underground lab up at Homestake. That's looking for dark matter. Ah, gotcha. So there are two separate experiments. The dark matter one, right, same kind of thing. You're looking for this vanishingly small event in this huge vat, I think it's liquid argon or something like that, um, to explain why, you know, the rotation of galaxies are, again, according to the standard model physics, are just going too fast. So there's got to be some material out there driving that. We we've never seen it, so that's what they're looking for.
0: Wow, what is what is a conversation at the dinner table for you guys? Like, oh, you guys are so (laughs) so freaking smart. Like, we we like
1: we like to watch cartoons and not talk about that stuff at night. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I love it. I love it. We had a period of time earlier this year that we were watching supermarket sweep reruns from like the 90s, so I can totally relate to that. Yeah. That's funny. Yeah, wow. it's nice to tune out. <laughs> wow, that's amazing. What a what a cool work. Well, I suppose you've done a few cool things yourself, so maybe we'll we'll spend the rest of the time talking about that. Uh, tell us <laughs> tell us how you got interested in
1: biology. Well, biology for me, I you know came out of high school pretty directionless. I have no clue what to do with myself. Um, went up to Montana State University in Bozeman, Montana, and we're just taking general classes. And I the, f- the first class I took in cell biology was taught by this just fantastic professor. You know, kind of a bearded old farmer from. He, he just loved being in rural Montana. But he went to Princeton and he was, he was on the cover of Life magazine for putting the first monkey into space. Wow. Um, so he had this really interesting background and career, but he started off talking about kind of the stuff we were talking about, about um, the Big Bang, supernovas, the creation of all these heavy met elements, the, the prebiotic evolution of life and so forth. And I just instantly was hooked to biochemistry, cell biology, and kind of never looked back. That's always kind of been my passion. Huh.
0: Is that how you got introduced to ketones and uh, the, the ketogenic state?
1: Ketones actually, the way those came about for me was I was looking when I was writing the first book, Tripping Over the Truth, which was about this group of scientists that kind of came up with a different theory of cancer—a a metabolic-based theory of cancer—as opposed to the, the the current one, which is called the somatic mutation theory of cancer. And one of the sort of uh, clinical or um, therapeutic mechanisms that came out of that, their theory of cancer was a, a ketogenic diet. So I started reading about ketogenic diets and I ran into these papers by a guy named Richard Veitch. Um, and, and he's also had a very interesting background. He actually got his PhD under Hans Krebs, who won the Nobel Prize for the Krebs cycle. And and Krebs got his PhD under Otto Warburg, who was the one who actually, um, yeah, quite a lineage. That is quite he a He was lineage. the one that... Yeah, he proposed the actually proposed the metabolic theory of cancer back in 1924. He was the first one to show this really you know distorted metabolism that cancer cells have, that they actively burn glucose in the presence of oxygen. And um, so, Richard Veech, you know, he just had these just outstanding papers on ketones. These really elegantly written papers on this unique biochemical properties of of ketones, and that's what caught me at first. They, They have these just astonishing properties especially beta hydroxybutyrate where they they're just imbued with more energy so per two carbon unit compared to glucose there's more energy in beta hydroxybutyrate so when you burn it when you switch over to that metabolism you just create more energy you create more atp um, and the spin off of that is it change sort of changes the way your electron transport chain works and you produce much, your cell produces fewer free radicals. So there's, there's a really dramatic alteration in the way the cell functions under this fuel source. And, it, you know, it's been marginalized throughout the 20th century. And, and we've known about ketone metabolism since back in, in the early 20s. It was the ketogenic diet was actually the standard of care for pediatric epilepsy. And then for some reason, it just became discarded and became kind of perverted in this version of a pathological form of metabolism because it became associated with diabetic ketoacidosis. Mm. And so people thought being in ketosis from fasting or any other mechanism was actually a dangerous state. And then you kind of see the history shift. Gary Taub started writing books, fat became less and less demonized. Richard Veach's papers came out and now it's, you know, it's exploded into this potentially, incredibly therapeutic state for a vast array of diseases.
0: Mm. I I look back on some of the textbooks that I got that discuss nutrition and they talk about the the pathways of ketosis and it's there. And they talk about like some of the things that could be viewed as, as benefits, but then, yeah, they don't, they don't go much further than that. It's almost like, I I don't know if it was like actively suppressed or if it's just, do you think it was like hidden in plain sight? Like what, why did that information not reach the masses sooner?
1: Yeah, that that's a great, great question. I look back at my biochemistry book from 95 and they had, it was actually written by Albert Leninger, the guy that discovered mitochondria. And he just, there was a short sentence on ketosis about how you enter this state if you're fasting or, or eating reduced calorie diets and people should be monitored because they could enter ketoacidosis. And, you know, we know that's not even remotely true now that a perfectly healthy person under that state is fine you know, and they knew that you could, you know, therapeutic fasting was really popular in the 50s, 60s. And so they would fast people with obesity for months on end. And, and the, back in the 60s, the longest fast ever recorded was 385 di- days by a Scottish man, and he was fine. There was zero problems, never entered ketoacidosis. So I have no idea why it got changed into this uh, version of being, you know, this kind of pathological state, it just doesn't make any sense.
0: Wow. So and, and just to clarify, like for ketoacidosis, and I think, I think people get super confused about this. And again, I'm not sure if this is on purpose or not, but that can only happen to a type one diabetic. Is that correct?
1: Right. Type one, or I believe, you know, really poorly controlled type two diabetics can, can get there, but yeah, typically type one. diabetics. Gotcha.
0: Right. Okay. You mentioned some of those fasting studies that has to include the Cahill study. Is that correct?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Those are in there, man. Yeah. So that, good. Yeah. That, that was in pale was the first one to really look at ketosis through a different lens. Like perhaps this is this kind of ele, elegant evolutionary a- adaptation to being without food. You know, it was certainly our ancestors had times of deprivation throughout our tenure. And, um, he looked at it in this lens and he, he did this crazy experiment where they, put catheters into the the vein the arteries and the veins of the kidneys liver and the brain so the jugular and the carotid arteries and had these patients they were fasted for 40 days he inserted those catheters and he measured the amount of ketones and glucose entering and exiting the the organs and the the, men, the sort of the dilemma at that time is nobody could figure out how a human being could survive a fast because it was thought that the brain could only burn blood glucose. They knew it couldn't burn fatty acids. They can't get past the blood brain barrier. So they thought it could only burn glucose. And the brain is a huge metabolic sink. It accounts for about 20% of our basal metabolism. So when you do the math, a, a human being should only be able to fast for 18 days before they die. And they knew that wasn't true. So he was the first one to establish that, yeah, once you convert over to ketosis, the brain will switch to burning ketones, about two thirds of the of the energy will be supplied by ketones.
0: Mm. Uh, Yeah. I just love those graphs that he put together and shows the percentages of, you know, your fuel source coming from, you know, the different sources and how the different organs all convert over to, to using ketones until it gets to like the very end. And it's just like red blood cells. And part of the kidneys basically are the only things using glucose. What an amazing study. I mean, ethically could, could they even do that study again today if they wanted to?
1: I doubt it. Yeah. No IRB committees now are so much more Um, less permissive than they used to be in the past. No, those days you could get away, you know, with anything. Mm. I I was just, in fact, I was just chatting about another, to somebody else about another procedure that, you know, I don't know if you're aware of fecal transplants.
0: Yeah, absolutely. um,
1: Yeah, they they had a hard time getting established, but they've actually been known since 1958. And um, the doctor that did it, he did it on four patients with dysentery. He just did it. And can you imagine that today? If you, no, and that was before no. the, there was nothing known about it. It was just thought that you know that feces was completely pathological. There's nothing good in it. And he just had a hunch that, well, maybe it's got something to do with gut bacteria. You know, the microbiome wasn't even known back then. Maybe I should just try this, and he did, and it cured these four patients. And then that, that was also kind of forgotten until pretty fairly recently. But yeah. In those days, doctors could get away with almost anything.
0: That's crazy. I mean, that's a that's a big cornerstone of your second book, Curable. Is that correct?
1: Yeah, yeah. I tell the story of the fecal transplant. Just it's so interesting. That that book looks at really the, the kind of why the, the inefficiencies in modern in healthcare today, hmm. why it's um why it's so inefficient. And one of the things we do is we we don't capitalize on these extremely valuable, but dirt cheap therapies, like fecal transplants, fasting, those kind of things. Wow.
0: So crazy. It just blows my mind. If we go back to cancer, I, I find this so interesting. Um, and, and personal, definitely. I lost my mom to cancer. Um, can you, can you tell us what cancer is like how, how we should think about different cancers? Are there different types of cancer or is, you know, kidney cancer, the same as pancreatic cancer? Are they, are they different? Or are they the same?
1: Well, that, okay. That, that's a, a fantastic question that's still being unravelled, and the the history of the, now that that's a very that's the most interesting question to me is what is it that cancer is why why does it occur what causes it what drives it, and that is still you know that that science is still being worked out. Um, it was thought it was worked out in 1976. There's a seminal group of experiments by Harold Barless and Michael Bishop that established that cancer was caused by mutations to DNA. And this kicked off the somatic mutation theory of cancer, that certain mutations to certain genes rewire the cellular functionality towards unproliferated growth. And this ushered in the area of targeted therapies. No one really ever looked back. Before that, there was competing theories. There was Warburg's metabolic theory. There was a viral theory. Um, but after that, nobody looked back. This was just cemented in stone. But then what happened in 2006, there was the technology advanced to where we could sequence genomes extremely cheaply and efficiently. And there's a project launched called the Cancer Genome Atlas. And the goal of this was to sequence the genomes of all different types of cancer and identify the signature of mutations that was driving it, right? So prostate, lung, all of these. And it was assumed that there would be a fairly tidy group of consistent mutations that drove each type of cancer. And that project officially ended, I think, 2012 and just left a wake of confusion. What what the overwhelming takeaway from that is cancer is ex- from the genetic mutation level is just a, a tornado of genetic chaos. There is very little consistency from one cancer to the next. And then you even find cases where there's, there's one mutation or zero mutations, yet you still have this cancer. So this group of scientists, you know, just moved on from that point. They're like, okay, this is not a genetic disease. There's got to be some other driving, driving fundamental driver of it. And that was the first book tripping over the truth. Tom Seyfried went back to Warburg's original theory, which states that the original damage occurs to mitochondria. The cell can't produce energy anymore. So it switches to this fermentation or anaerobic pathway. And that's what you see when you see a PET scan is the, the, the cancer cells just voraciously consuming blood glucose and kicking out lactic acid. And then from that conversion, you get an epigenetic signal that tells the DNA to express the genes for growth, for uncontrolled growth. So it's a completely different view of what cancer is. Um, so what your question, can you tell the different types, the one consistency that you have between all types of cancer is that Warburg effect, that shift in metabolic, um, The way they process blood sugar. So, from a therapeutical standpoint, that's a wonderful thing. Now you have this big target that's on, on all cancers. But from a genetic standpoint, no, you really, it's difficult to tell what one type from the next beyond, you know, the obvious histology of the tissue type of origin.
0: I think it was Jason Fung in his last book, The Cancer Code, that talked about like even the same cancer and two people in the waiting room can be completely different. Is that right?
1: Yeah. Yeah. The cancers can just be wildly different they can you know once they once metastasis starts they can get subclonal populations and start behaving differently Mm. um it's just a disease we just don't know it doesn't play by normal rules it's so close to our physiology you know if somebody has an infection you can give them an antibiotic and the antibiotic will go into a bacterial cell wall and bind it up and kill the bacteria because its physiology is different from ours but cancer co-ops so much of what healthy cells use to survive that it's just a brutal problem when it comes to therapies.
0: Mm. We were fortunate enough to have Dr. Seyfried. I know you mentioned him already. What a, what a warrior that guy has been for so long and what a, what an amazing message he had to share. And he taught us a little bit about what you were just mentioning, which is the metabolism of cancer cells is kind of like, it's, it's kind of broken. It's not like the cancer is advancing in the way that we think it's, it's like, advancing um you know like a better technology it's actually like a reversion in the way that we metabolize energy is that correct
1: that's exactly right yeah 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 it's kind of funny what they call yeah cancer is like this evolution where it's gaining function by getting mutations it's kind of absurd but it's always been described that way yeah the way in dr safe sort of version of it it's a reversion back to this sort of primal um energy generation and you look back you know, I think it was 3 billion years ago that my multicellular life began before that it was all single cellular life. And the only biological imperative of single cellular life is to divide over and over and over again. And it ferments, it uses the same sort of energy generation that cancer does. And so it looks like cancer is kind of a hopscotch back to this old sort of evolution of cells back in the beginning. Um, you know, back before where there was even multicellular organisms. Mm.
0: And it's, it's not a very like intelligent kind of process because if, if cancer is proliferating and there's nothing to stop it, eventually it's going to kill its host. And by, by definition, kill itself.
1: Exactly. Exactly. Right. Right. Yeah. So it doesn't have, yeah, there's no sort of selection pressures on it to, to, um, to, to keep it going. Yeah. It's, it's, but it's, what it is is the reason it's still there is it's, it's a basic, um, you know, it's a fundamental need of what we have in our in in life. And you look at when fertilization occurs and then embryogenesis, the, those early embryonic cells look very much like cancer cells. They're highly glycolytic, they're invasive, they sort of, they, they can escape the immune system. And so that early functionality of those cells is what kind of what cancer cells are hopscotching back to. And you look at the genetic expression and it's, Cancer cells are expressing many of the same genes of early embryogenesis. And that's why I say it's so hard to therapeutically attack it because it's just built into our core biology.
0: Mm, Okay. Gotcha. I'm so glad you went there. So let's, let's just, let's say that is correct. Everything you just said about cancer and and how it proliferates is correct. What are the implications from that? Like, what would you logically come to a conclusion? Like, okay, if cancer does this, if it looks like this, it's not, you know, doesn't share genetic properties with other cancers. What, what implications does that tell you about how we should be treating cancer?
1: (laughs) Yeah, well, Doctor seyfried has got a very unique approach. It's called the press-pulse approach. So you're, the target you're looking at now is that defective metabolism. That's right, with differentiating it from normal healthy cells. And so, just start with the ketogenic diet. This press-pulse therapy. The idea is you you make cancer cells uncomfortable first, so they're weakened, and then you add in these pulse therapies. It could be anything that's sort of had that can kill cancer cells, like hyperbaric oxygen. Um, some types of drugs, things like that, but they're just short pulses. So what the ketogenic diet does, why it's so unique, is, is Tom, what Tom has done, Safe is demonstrated that the mitochondria cancer cells are very messed up, right? They're damaged. So the cancer cells have reverted to this fermentation pathway, and they're not generating energy with oxygen. So when you switch to ketosis, what you do is you drive down blood glucose, and you replace that with a fuel that has to be burned in mitochondria. So cancer cells can't burn it. So they're on, they're weakened because they just don't have a fuel source that they normally have. And on, this, on the other side, healthy cells, it's very easy to show, are made more robust by ketones. Everything's improved. Antioxidant status, um, energy status, everything. So you have this wonderful therapeutic differential between the cancer cell and the healthy cell. And this has been shown. There's cool studies, I think, done by Walter Longo where they had... Um, Patients fast for 48 to 72 hours before chemotherapy or radiation, and the the amount of side effects that they experience, objective ones, like, you know, the number of times they might vomit or mouth sores, were just dramatically reduced. So that's because of that therapeutic um, differential where the healthy cells are just made more more robust to withstand those oxidative assaults. But, but it's an, it's a t- you know it's an interesting approach because you can attack theoretically any cancer type using that because of this defective metabolism. And it's early stage. You know, we know a little bit about the ketogenic diet. There's case studies. There's a lot of mouse work that shows a lot of potential. My foundation is trying to fund um, the biggest trial to date for the ketogenic diet and glioblastoma. That's a brain cancer at cedar cyanide. And we just have a small funding gap, but we're we're pretty confident we'll get there soon.
0: Wow. I think that was such a great point to make that it's beneficial on both ends. It's beneficial to decrease the glucose and it's beneficial also to increase the ketones.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's it's you never it's so rare to see therapies that are, you know, have that differential between normal cells and healthy cells. Almost always when you throw small molecules into a body, they they're, they're going to give you a therapeutic effect, but they're also going to gum up health, you know, normal pathways and give side effects. Hmm. You know, and this is one of those few therapies that you just get this beautiful differential and there doesn't seem to be any, there's no harm, you know, there's no, it's completely safe. So it just needs to be explored. And the problem is it hasn't been is simply because of money. This is a free therapy and there's just no incentive to run these clinical trials.
0: Hmm. Wow. That's so interesting. Okay. So, so that's the non-toxic you know, that's one thing you can do that's non-toxic. What, what about, let's contrast that with a more toxic form of cancer treatment that we do. It, it just, it strikes me as so bizarre that, that we have this free thing that is beneficial in multiple ways, protects you and eliminates a fuel for, you know, the cancer. Yet we do things where we just like carpet bomb the entire body or shoot, you know, radiation at ourselves. Like how do, how do we contrast those two things?
1: I see it, yeah well when you when you read the history of medicine you you will just be just it's a, it's impossible to not be astonished how bad it can go right how long things can go on that are unnecessary and how long it takes to replace them and and so if you could show for example that a ketogenic diet with say hyperbaric oxygen was better than radiation, first thing is it's going to be brutally hard to conduct that clinical trial because you're asking patients to forego standard of care. And most oncologists won't even do that. They'll say, no, I'm not going to put my patient in that situation. And, and so it just, it, it takes incredibly long. One example of that is they used to do the radical mastectomy for breast cancer and in just a brutally disconfiguring procedure where they go in and it was thought that the further you cut away from a primary tumor, the better chances of survival for the patient, because you're theoretically getting more of those cancer cells that are that are metastasizing outward. So they would cut out ribs, collarbones, the muscles of the pectoris, wow. um, all the lymph nodes of the neck, and this, you know, these women's shoulders were caved in. They they would take years of recovery, lymphedema, their arms would swell. And this was based nothing more than pretty much the intuition of the cancer surgeons. This went on until the for a hundred years almost until the 1980s, when a few surgeons started saying, "I don't think this is necessary. I think, you know, simple mastectomy or a lumpectomy might have the same result." So they decided to conduct a trial, a huge multicenter trial. Again, they almost couldn't get surgeons to do it because they called them murderers. They said that the ones that were organizing the trial were murdering these women when they finally conducted it, it showed zero benefit for the radical mastectomy, but it was propagated for a hundred years. And so I, you know, I, I think we're in the same sort of dark ages with oncology. We're still using these sort of medieval toxic therapies that, you know, radiation is a hundred years old. Wow. Um, and we haven't moved past that. So it's just yeah the the the, inner, the the slowness of it is 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 incredibly frustrating.
0: Wow, with with so many people dying every single day. I mean, I have a friend. She must have been in her mid to late thirties. She had a double mastectomy done as preventative. Does that make any sense?
1: Did she have the BRCA gene? I don't know. Yeah that that that's usually the only time they would do that.
0: Does that, yeah.
1: Otherwise it would make no sense. No.
0: Does that, does that like, tell me about that gene. Does that guarantee that you're going to get breast cancer or make it like highly, highly likely or something?
1: It doesn't increase it. I mean, it doesn't guarantee it, but yes, it makes it much more likely that you'll get breast or ovarian cancer. That that was, uh, um, Angelina Jolie. She wrote a, um, op-ed in the New York times called my medical choice. And she opted to get a, a, um, double mastectomy. And I think her, A hysterectomy because her mom died of breast cancer and she had the BRCA gene. Now, you know you can debate the statistics, probability, how successful preventative techniques could be, but you know when people are put in that vulnerable position and they're terrified, you know that that's those kind of things are common.
0: Yeah, totally. I (laughs) I can relate to that. That's crazy. Um, okay. So you yeah. mentioned radiation being a hundred years old. So what is the goal of radiation in particular? Like what, what are they trying for when somebody is, is getting that done?
1: Radiation, you know, it's a very simple therapy. It just, all it does is it, it's, uh, ionizing radiation will split water, create free radicals and cancer cells are very vulnerable to oxidative stress or free radicals. So it's just literally just blasting them with free radicals until they die. And, and the trouble with, um, radiation is, is you really gotta, you gotta aim well because anything you hit on the outside or any healthy tissue is just going to be, you know, bombarded, destroyed. It's very carcinogenic. So the borders, if you miss can, you can get cancers that erupt from the, from the radiation itself later.
0: Wow. That, that, that stat right there. Just, I didn't, I didn't. (laughs) I've learned that recently, and that blows my mind, that you're using something to treat cancer, but it can also cause more cancer down the road.
1: <laughs> yeah, and that goes for all the, key, you know, the traditional chemotherapy, same thing. When you treat, even successfully treat for Hodgkins or, you know, childhood leukemia, those kids, those people down the road have hugely increased chances of other types of cancer. Wow, interesting. And then what about chemotherapy?
0: When, when did that kind of come about, and how has that evolved over time?
1: The original chemotherapy, pretty pretty interesting story, it came in World War II, and it was a long-standing dream to get a chemotherapeutic agent because prior to that, all all they had was surgery and radiation. So this idea of you know a, a medicine that could flow throughout the body and attack cancer was this long-standing dream, and all they knew about cancer at that point was it was uncontrolled pathological cell division. So that's all they could really target was dividing cells. And so in World War II, the, the Allies had forces in Bari Harbor in uh, Italy, and it was thought that the Luftwaffe, the German Air Force, was stre- stretched too thin to see them and attack them, but they actually did. They attacked them, dropped bombs, blew up the U.S. Harvey um, ship, which contained, I think, 120,000 pounds of mustard gas. Wow. And that wow. spread out all over the harbor, all over the troops, the town, that killed about 1,000 people. The the uh, medical staff flew over from the States, grabbed tissue samples, brought them back. And what they noticed when they brought them back was the lymphoid tissue was depleted. So the white blood cells and lymph nodes and the bone marrow was was gone. Then they got this crazy idea. Well, that's what lymphoma is, is uncontrolled white blood cell growth. Maybe this could be a chemotherapeutic agent. And so they injected people with mustard gas. And that was the first chemotherapy agent. And they were able to induce these... Sort of flickering remissions, but you know they didn't hold. The cancer always came back. But that that established the you know the therapeutic route were these extraordinarily toxic molecules that would go in and just target cell division. They didn't use mustard gas for very long, but the ones that came after were were very similar. They would lock up DNA, prevent cell division, come in with these you know litany of side effects, and that that went on until the late '70s. They pushed and pushed and pushed with these handful of chemotherapeutic drugs they had until it just got too too hard to watch they tried to cure every cancer with them and just were killing the patients before they were even touching the cancer wow
0: Crazy. So how has that evolved over time? Like is, is chemotherapy more, I mean, obviously it's, it's, it's you know, better than it used to be. Are, are, what, what has the highest success ratio? Is it a combination of radiation and chemotherapy, uh, adding a surgery to it? Does that improve things? Like, Where do we, where do we see the most benefit from using a traditional, you know, arguably toxic kind of t-
1: cancer treatment? Yeah, it varies for every type of cancer. So the chemotherapy is realize their potential pretty quick. And they, they're very good as standard of care for a certain amount of cancers like testicular cancer, Hodgkin's disease, um, childhood leukemias, things like that. Um, their efficacy goes down for solid tumors beyond those type cancers and their percentage of survival for people after that. Surgery, you know, if you can get to a cancer early with surgery, that's always the best case. Hmm. At 95% of the reason people die from cancer is metastasis. So if you can get to it early, cut it out. That's always, always the best, you know, best chances from a therapy. But it, you know, there's so many things coming out, Casey. There's so many targeted drugs, immunotherapies. Every cancer has got a different standard of care. There's targeted agents now. Um, it just varies incredibly varied from cancer to cancer nowadays.
0: Mm. I've heard you talk about this in the past as well. Um, and, and I believe we talked about this with Dr. Seyfried, but isn't, isn't the non-toxic treatment, couldn't that also be used as an adjunct to a more traditional, um, treatment and, and see some benefit there?
1: Yeah, that's where it looks like it has is by far its most promise is, is, is I talked about that therapeutic differential earlier in the press poll. So once you put somebody on a ketogenic diet, the cancer's weakened, and then if you came in with chemotherapy, and and you could it'd be great to even try these trials with a lower dose to see if you could get a same effect or a better effect with a lower dose. Um, that that is a perfect adjunctive therapy, something that's non toxic that helps the cancer cells. So I think these metabolic therapies, they will that's going to be their primary roles as adjunctive therapies. Mm
0: so your opinion just just pure opinion do you foresee a world where we are talking about this a little bit more than we are today or are there is it just is it such an uphill climb too many powers to be too much money like is 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 this ever going to come out and be more like common knowledge
1: i i believe so yeah since i got involved in this very few people were talking about it now there's entire conferences, there's entire departments for cancer metabolism. Um, Lou Cantley at Cornell Weil, he, he's involved in cancer metabolism. He's got a drug that he developed that actually they're using it in concert with the ketogenic diet now. So it, it has become somewhat mainstream. Um, to get there, you know what we what we want to do the foundation is if we can get this trial rolling. It, it's powered enough with enough patients, multi center trial that we could see the statistical benefit, if we see a statistical benefit, it it will be received as that, you know, it won't be questioned as a case study or a small trial. Um, And who knows how that'll change? You know, already, I know there are oncologists out there, typically younger ones that recommend ketogenic diets for their patients and kind of a a why not thing. We don't have a ton of data, but it's not going to hurt you. Risk reward is balanced. So um, yeah, I do. I think that, I think that we will get there again. It takes so long because of the money, there's no incentive to do it, but, um, there's enough inertia now that I think we'll get there eventually. Mm.
0: And I think when people think of a ketogenic diet, they think of like, okay, I've got to, I've got to drink, you know, olive oil or it's just butter and bacon. And with a ketogenic diet, there's a lot of different ways that you can get into a state of ketosis. Can you talk a little bit about fasting and, and how that may play a, play a role in getting into ketosis?
1: Yeah, yeah. Fasting, you know, the way I think about the ketogenic diet is just the nutritional maintenance of the fasting state, right? So the the fasting is the quickest way to get into ketosis. You just stop eating, your liver burns through all of its carbohydrates, and then your body starts immobilizing fat, and then you go into ketosis a few days later. So then if you just maintain a ketogenic diet after that you're really just maintaining that fasting state but it's a nutritional maintenance so you're eating the fat rather than burning it off your body potentially. Um, yeah, and it's easy once you get into that, you know, there's if people have been eating a standard American diet for a long time, there's going to be some, you know, right at the beginning it's bumpy. You'll feel you'll feel like crap for about 2 weeks. But you can think of this kind of as a purging time as your body's switching over but then you start to feel great. I, 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 some people have a hard time maintaining it, but the, you know, the foods that you couldn't eat before butter, um, kind of luxurious foods that you, you have kind of unlimited access to. So it, I think once you get into it, it's a pretty easy diet to maintain.
0: Yeah. I couldn't agree more. I, I couldn't even imagine going back to the way I was eating before, um, you know, at least fasting for most of the day. Like it's, 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 So it's free. It doesn't cost you anything. In fact, it's cheaper than buying food. It doesn't require any time. You have so much more resource to go do other things, go, go do what you're doing at the foundation, get your work done. Like there's so many other cool things that you can be doing versus just eating all the time. I think that's a a wonderful tool. Your third book, um, ketones, uh, the fourth fuel. Can you talk a little bit about why you chose that as the title?
1: I, w- I just wanted to get ketones in there so it wouldn't be confusing for people. <laughs> but, but the fourth fuel, yeah, it was—it was, it was uh, you know, it was known that proteins, carbohydrates, and fats were fuel. Um, it was not known until about the '40s, I believe, that that ketone bodies were actually metabolic fuel. It actually, it was earlier that I think it was the '20s. So it's the fourth fuel, but it's this sort of underappreciated fuel, and it's the story. Really, it centers on Richard Beach's work. It goes way back and talks about cellular metabolism, and then. To kind of you know give you the base of why ketones are important and why they're so beneficial, but it's really a look at uh, Richard Beach's work and and then moving forward, what are the potentials of of ketogenic diets or exogenous ketones for all pretty much all disease states, especially neurological.
0: Mm. And I wouldn't normally consider protein as a fuel source, but technically it is. Can you explain why that is?
1: Yeah. Protein. So when you eat protein, obviously you you digest it down to its amino acids and then amino acids can't be stored, right? Unlike fat and sugar. So they, they either have to be incorporated into proteins or they're burned as fuel and they can be broken down and then enter as Krebs cycle intermediates and then be burned oxidatively. So yeah, proteins can be a fuel source. They can also go through gluconeogenesis and be converted back into glucose and then glucose is burned. So they are a fuel source. Traditionally, we think of them as building blocks, right? So build proteins from them. But under certain states, if you eat a lot of protein, um, you'll you'll burn it as fuel. Hmm. You you mentioned
0: supercharging the metabolism when you're in this type of a state, and I can certainly confirm that on a metabolic cart that I used for years and years measuring people's resting metabolic rate. If they were eating in a certain way, their metabolic rates would be very high, like way higher than the standard kind of normal deviation that I would expect for somebody that was in their demographic, like age, height, weight, and gender. Can you explain why that is?
1: So tell me a little bit about that. You, you measured them while they were in ketosis and found a faster metabolism.
0: Yeah. So, so generally speaking, and this, this took me a long time to wrap my head around. Like I, we'd hook people up to a metabolic analyzer, which is measuring people's breath, uh, you know, the volume and also the, the gas exchange. So oxygen in, you know, carbon dioxide out kind of thing. And I would, I would, you know, do a test for somebody. And if you've been calorie depleted for a really long time, you've done a lot of diets, you do a lot of cardio, we would show pretty easily like, yeah, your metabolic rate is going to be really low. We need to, you know, work to kind of like increase this. We need to get you off the cardio, eat more calories, maybe do some strength training, change their lifestyle a little bit. But this weird phenomenon would happen when, you know, fasting and keto was getting a little bit more popular. I remember one in particular where like the dude came in, he, his, his standard, metabolism should have been right around 2000 for a resting metabolic rate or the number of calories that he burned sitting in this really comfortable chair in a dark office. And the numbers came back, you know, 20, 30 minutes later is 2,600. And I was like, wow, dude, like this is, this is good. I mean, your metabolism certainly like ramped up. You need to eat 2,600 calories to be able to maintain this. And he got a little exacerbated and was like, dude, I, what do you want me to eat? Like Twinkies and soda? Like I can't eat that many calories if I tried. And it, again, it, 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 it was so difficult to understand because I've always been told, like, unless you're eating at least your resting metabolic rate, that number's going to drop, but it wasn't happening with these people. And, and it, you know, a lot of, you know, Dr. Fung's work helped me understand that they were, they were mobilizing more of their own stored fat. Thus, they didn't need more of the exogenous, you know, they don't need food nearly as much.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's very interesting. And I'd be, you know, a little dubious about any one person because um, you just have a hard time drawing conclusions from any single metabolic entity, right? Sure. You want to do it with a group. Um, theoretically, you know, when someone's in ketosis, they should be, basal, their basal metabolism should be more efficient because they are, we we know you you burn, need less oxygen to maintain the same amount of energy from ketones they're, they're more efficient fuel. So per unit oxygen, you'll generate more energy than with glucose. So that, that's a little surprising. You know, it's, it's, it's when, when the exogenous ketones came out in 2012 and the cycling teams found out about them, right? That's the British cycling team was the first one to get the ketone ester. And that's the year they won, I think, nine gold medals started competing really high up in the tour de France And then all these other cycling teams caught on and started ordering ketone ester. Um, And uh, they say it's like, one of the guys says it's like a miracle drink and it just gives them this unprecedented ability to recover. It's not necessarily really dramatically performance enhancing, but like week three of the Tour de France, their heart rates are lower and they just have more, they're just recovered more. They're not as broken down. And biochemically, that makes sense. Not just from a fuel perspective, but the fact that when you're in ketosis, you really produce fewer free radicals. Not only that, but you produce more glutathione. So the free radicals that are being produced, you can you have an antioxidant capacity to mop those up. So you know when you're burning that many calories over what is a four-week race, Tour de France, the oxid- how many free radicals you're generating is just crazy. And if you can quench that, then over time, you could see why these guys are just in way, way better shape. Mm -hmm. And I did a study where they gave mice uh, an exogenous ketone and then the other control mice didn't get it. And then they blasted them with radiation, measured the DNA damage in both mice. And there was a 50% reduction of DNA damage in the, um, the mice that had the exogenous ketone. So its ability to, you know, to change metabolism. One of the the most astonishing things is this ability to quench free radicals. Hmm.
0: Wow. That's super interesting. Tyler Hamilton talked about that in his book, the secret race, where he kind of exposed, you know, the U S postal team and all the doping that they were doing in a three week race, like the tour de France, he said, biologically, you should be losing 2% of your power for every single week. And so his point was like, you know, watch, watch these guys on the very second to last day when they're doing a time trial and they should be 6% less power output than their first one. And if they're not, you may be a little bit suspect that they're doing something, but yeah, he said the same thing about recovery. It was so important. That's why they all took testosterone. It wasn't necessarily for the performance per se. It was more for the recovery because yeah, it's just so brutal and you're just accumulating so much waste product. Like you talked about, that seems like a super important thing. Now they were using ketone esters. Is that what they all do now?
1: Yeah. Yeah. They make, um, yes, exactly. They use, uh, I think it's HVMN ketone aid. Those are the companies that make, there's probably more now that make the ester, but, um, that's originally what they were using. Who knows? They could be using other stuff, but I know they were placing huge orders, like $200,000. The stuff is pretty expensive, you know, before the tour de France, cause they were afraid they wouldn't get it. And they knew, you know, what an advantage it had. Wow. Yeah. So that's another
0: thing I was going to ask about, you know, esters seem to be very expensive and also pretty nasty to take from what I've heard. Um, but you can also do, um, salts or you could also do something like an MCT oil. Um, how do those play a factor? Do people use those as well?
1: Yeah, they're, they're very different. So the ester is the most potent by far. And, um, the salts, the problem you run into is you have to conjugate the beta hydroxybutyrate with a salt, like a magnesium or sodium, and so you can't really get that much of a dose because you'll just overwhelm yourself with salt. Um, MCT oil is the same thing. You can bump up ketones a little bit, but you know, you're know you restricted by how much MCT oil you can get. It's, it can be pretty caustic on the GI track if you overdo it. Um, so the ester kind of bypasses all those. It's a way you can bump up ketones kind of wherever you want to. You, know, you Obviously, you don't want to go too high, but you can get three, four, five millimolar um, pretty easy, wow. but you're right. They taste, they taste awful. They taste like rocket fuel. I think, I think they're starting to get a little better, but, um, you know, they just taste very unnatural.
0: <laughs> <laughs> wow. And it is interesting. I don't, I don't think a lot of other fuels work this way. Correct me if I'm wrong, but w- with ketones, it's really supply driven, right? Like the more you get, the better. That's kind of like a, a, a linear thing. Correct. You really do want to drive up those numbers if you want the, the very best performance.
1: I think performance wise, that makes perfect sense. Yeah. And I, I, am not sure the studies, you know, the performance studies they've done, uh, I think they were bumping it up to like 2.5 to three millimolar. And, um, they did one that emulated the tour de France. They had guys work out twice a day for three weeks and then do a time that one group was on the ketones and the other group was not at the end of the three weeks, they had them do a time trial and the guys in the ketones had 15% more output. And, you know, in a race like the tour de France, it's defined by a fraction of one percent. So that's a huge difference. Um, yeah, they bump up higher, but you know, like I'm I'm 49. I've I've I'm more interested now in in longevity prevention. And there's a lot of data that shows that you really don't need to get to these really high millimolar amounts to have the kind of benefit that we think we see. We're going to see from ketosis, which is just prevention of of chronic disease and longevity.
0: Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. I think most of us would kind of agree that like driving those numbers up that high for most of us is not going to be a huge benefit. Uh, they haven't called me to race the tour de France just yet, but, uh, kind of doubt they will. Um, interesting. So, so going back, I want to ask you, I love asking this question. You being you, knowing all this stuff you know about cancer, you know uh, you know ketones, all of the the work that you've done. how do you construct your life? What does Travis do every single day? What are some practices that you have that you find to be very beneficial?
1: You know I, I, lately you know the most bang for your buck, just for from health perspective seem for me is, is like um, I, I do eat a, pretty much a ketogenic diet, but time restricted eating. And there's some new data out that shows, that showed, maybe you've seen this, uh, when people eat within a certain eating window, so say they don't eat for about 16, 17 hours, and then they eat during the window, they show that their monocytes and their circulating monocytes, so this is the type of immune cell that causes inflammation, is just dramatically reduced, right? That's pretty, that's pretty interesting. Just from not eating, your, your systemic inflammation is reduced. Um, it just goes, it goes back to, to me to, I think the body was designed to do that. It was designed, it's just like a pumping mechanism where we were designed to go through periods of not eating. And that generates these un, kind of unforetold health benefits that should be there, but we've repressed probably now for a hundred years due to the overabundance of food in the standard American diet. Um, so that's one thing that I've been doing a lot lately. I've just noticed it's had a big difference. I just feel much, much better. Um, you know, other things that it's incurable. I I did started a chapter by ask, looking at all the people that lived. So um, centenarians that live beyond 110. And it's it's really cool because they interview all these people and they ask them, what's the key to your longevity? And so you get this incredible variety of answers. One lady said it was drinking Dr. Pepper. One guy said it was smoking 12 cigars a day. Um, one, you know, it just goes on and on and on. And then I looked at the, the longest living human ever. So she lived to be 122. Her name is Jean Clement from France. And her lifestyle was really interesting. She married, she had a rich husband, so she didn't really have to work. They did a lot of hiking, playing tennis, um, she smoked started smoking like in her late 20s she'd smoke one or two cigarettes after dinner very French and she stopped smoking when she was 117. Wow <laughs> and she drank you know she drank some port wine she ate some chocolate she didn't really live what we would call this perfect lifestyle but She was extraordinarily active and social, and so when you look at the variables epidemiologically that really matter for longevity, all of these people they have no idea why they lived this long. But the one commonality is they've been they've had really good social networks, and that epidemiologically shows those are the two most important variables to longevity. Is like your social integration. I guess the way to sum it up is not feeling lonely. When you look at lonely people, they're they overexpress inflammatory genes and underexpress really targeted immune responses. So there's this kind of a constant state of inflammation. And I didn't realize how just important biologically that is, that there's this kind of fuzzy interface between our feeling, our perception of the world and our core biology, our immune function and and longevity. So that's something, you know, it's kind of a a nice signpost for a good life. You don't have to worry too much. If you can live to be 122 and smoke a couple cigarettes every night um, for a hundred years, then we we don't need to be worrying about a lot of the things we're worrying about. But the most important variable is just to live a good life, be integrated in your community, you know, do fun things with people and in your family. So it's kind of a nice sort of message. And that's what the data says. Mm,
0: I love that. That's a great answer. Okay. Now I'm going to throw a wrench into this and say, you get a diagnosis today of cancer. Does anything in your lifestyle change or do you just continue doing what you do?
1: If, if I got, yeah, if I get the diagnosis, I, I would do what the press pulse. In addition, you know, I, of course you look at every type of cancer. If, if, uh, if the standard of care has got a good survival rate, you, you clearly you go with that. But I, I would not hesitate to introduce fasting, a very good ketogenic diet. And then I look and I look at repurposed drugs. There's all kinds of um, very safe established drugs like metformin, um, mabendazole, things like that, that have shown off target effect for cancer. And they've been in the clinic for decades. So, you know, their safety profile, they won't interfere with standard of care. And there's many, many, you know, options with those type of um, sort of <laughs> adjunctive therapies. But yeah, that would be where I would start with those two things.
0: Mm, gotcha. That's a really great answer. Man. So you wrote, you wrote three books in four years. We have barely scratched the surface on, um, curable, which I would love to invite you back to be able to chat about those concepts. I, I, I love that. It's just so much to get to in an hour long podcast. Uh, How I, dude, I, I can't even write a blog a month and you wrote three books in four years. What was that process like?
1: (laughs) It's a lot of sitting on the deck in the back and, uh, yeah, no, it's it's a frustrating process. I'm always kind of agitated when I'm writing books because I can't get them out of my head. Huh. So I try to get them done as fast as I can. Um, but I, do, I love the process. You know, I've never, it's just that creative energy is fun. But yeah, you definitely need breaks in between them.
0: Mm, wow. Um, what are you working on for the future?
1: The future, you know, the foundation is taking a lot of time right now. We've got some exciting projects. Um, I'm just waiting to get inspired for the next book. And we'll see what that is. I'm not sure yet.
0: Hmm. No, no rest for the weary. It sounds like
1: that's right.
0: Wow. This has been a super interesting conversation. Um, I've again, followed your work for a really long time and I'm really excited to get you on. If you had to distill all of this down to one thing, I think you've already said it, but if you were to give the listener one simple tip from this conversation, what would that be?
1: Yeah, I would go back to what I said earlier about not, not worrying too much about the, you know, the stress, the worrying about, um, getting everything just perfect those type of things um, probably is more detrimental than getting them perfect. If we even know what perfect is. So I think that's, that's a good message for people is just, you know, those, those things your grandma told you, get outside, have fun. Don't worry too much. Those are really powerful
0: messages. I love that. What a great way to end this conversation. Where would you like people to go to find you connect with your work and find your foundation?
1: Uh, Foundation's got a website foundation for metabolic cancer therapies. And then, you know, I'm trying to stay more active on Twitter. I like, I actually like it. I know it's got bad, there's some bad sides to it too, but I, when you follow the right people. You just get, I just, the newsfeed fills up with pretty interesting things. I make. must be following the wrong people then. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you got to do it. You got to do it carefully. I've I've fallen into a few mind traps, too.
0: Oh, man. If I get scrolling on Twitter, I just I get so mad within 30 seconds. I'm like, what am I doing? (laughs) 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 I'm not going to like start a fake fight on cyberspace with somebody I don't even know. (laughs) But I always want to. I know.
1: Yeah, it's, I don't understand that. Yeah, apparently my eyes just gloss over and I'm able to mentally just skip over that. But yeah, there's just a lot of unnecessary banter about BS. I don't don't get it. Well, I'll have to go
0: through your list of people that you follow and follow all of those people. I'm definitely not following (laughs) the right people. (laughs) Uh, Travis Christopherson. This is amazing. What a fun conversation. Thank you so much for everything that you do for, you know, your work with the foundation, the books you've written are fantastic. I love the style that you wrote them in. It, it feels like a novel. Um, it's, it's, they're really engaging and great. And, and yeah, I would recommend any of the listeners to definitely go check them out and, and follow you and your work and follow you on Twitter. And yeah, we're just so grateful for you and for taking the time to be on our show today.
1: Thank you, Casey. Thanks for everything you do too. Appreciate it. Well,
0: thank you very much. And this has been another episode of Boundless Body Radio.